All right, Sean, I know your story, but other people don't. So let's start with, and it's such a weird question, but what's, what's your franchise story? How do you even fall into franchising? You've been in franchising for a while, but how do you fall into it and where are you at today? Yeah, so uh, it's a it's a 25 year story. Uh, so after I uh, decided to leave corporate America, I became a franchisee uh, and in uh, Mrs. Fields Cookies and then eventually grew that to Great American Cookies, Pretzel Maker, Pretzel Time, uh, Salsaritas, Fresh Cantina, Once Upon a Child. So I had 14 locations across four states and, you know, five or six different brands, whatever it works out to. And today I'm a franchisee of Scenthound. Uh, we have one location that's open up in uh, Wichita, Kansas. And then uh, we have one location that's open in Houston and a second location that'll be open by the end of the year. And then uh, plans for about three or four more of those uh, to, to open up. Uh, I'm fortunately in uh, partnership with my kids on those. So I'm not the operator anymore. They are. Uh, so I act more as a mentor and a coach. Um and then I guess more of my story is that I've, I've also been a franchisor in my past um, right here in Houston, Texas at a company called Safeway Driving. It's a driver training school. And then most recently, seven and a half years as a uh, franchise supplier. And uh, my current role is, is president at Careertopia Franchise Executive Search. And uh, we do just that. We try to find some fantastic executives to place at franchisors. But we also recruit for uh, suppliers and franchisees. So that's my day to day. All right. So a lot of things in that great opening statement, a lot of things I want to unpack. So first I want to go to franchisee. Yeah. And so you you decide that you want to buy into becoming a franchisee. If I go all the way back to your opening up unit one, what was the trigger that made you decide to even become a franchisee? Uh, well, I think, you know, a lot of people as, as kids or young adults, they have this dream that they want to be a business owner. And, and of course, I always had that dream as well. Um, but I, even at a younger age, I knew like where my limitations were. I, I didn't know marketing that well. Um, you know, I wasn't, I truly didn't have the entrepreneurial mindset to start Sean's Taco Shack or something like that. Uh, so I decided to look into franchising because what I was really strong at was operations. And I, I attribute that to my uh, education background of being an engineer and then also my time in the military. I think military breaks down operations step by step by step by step so that you do things exactly the way they're supposed to be done. Uh, so that really gave me a lot of background and foundation to to be an operator. And that's that's what got me into franchising in the first place. I mean, I picked cookies, right? There wasn't, there wasn't a, like I didn't bake cookies my whole life and uh, decide that I wanted to go into business with it. I found a concept that I thought that I could operate and operate well. So. When, when you decided you, you land on cookies, or at least in, in that point, you're going through the discovery process. Did you think about doing other things or did you stay the course once you found Mrs. Fields? Or Great American Cookies. Yeah, both. In fact, uh, so, you know, it, this was in 1998. And uh, back then, food, I mean, it still does dominate the franchise industry, right? But back then, it was like 90% of the franchise industry. Service brands weren't around much. Right. So, you know, I really just started looking at food. 
I knew there was no chance of being a McDonald's franchisee or, or at that time, something that was a little bit too expensive for me. So I looked for something that had, you know, a good entry level financially and uh, something that was easy to, to, to perform. And, you know, the quick service restaurant definitely uh, had a focus on having their operations very sound and uh, easy to replicate. So, um, yeah, I just, I found cookies and stayed with them. I, I got to tell you though, I, um, I, I joke about this, but I found this opportunity. This is 1998 in the newspaper, in the one ads. Uh, so it, you know, the research involved back then was, was not overwhelmingly and the due diligence wasn't as due as it should be. I mean, th things have changed. I remember working with honey baked ham very early on in my career. And it's like, all right, after you get us in the newspaper, then let's go buy a classified ad. If I say classified ad to my children today, they say, they have no idea. Right. <laughs> things have changed. Um, okay. So you scale as a franchisee and you get to 14 units, multi-brand franchise owner. At that point, what made you decide to stop scale and try something different? What was the trigger that that got you to the point that said, I've accomplished a lot. I, I want to do something different. Uh, really, I think it was two things. Uh, one was, you know, mall concepts, uh, which was the vast majority of my, my uh, portfolio. Mall concepts became very difficult and expensive to run and our margins were eroding very quickly. Um, so I no longer had I, I say in 1998, I could open up a Mrs. Fields and probably have a 20% margin of profitability. And, um, you know, I, I sold one of my locations to somebody that I still keep in contact with today. And they still own that same store and, and have, you know, about a three or 4% uh, margin. Uh, so it just eroded that much. And I decided that that wasn't something that I wanted to continue moving forward with. And I thought I'd better, you know, rip that bandaid as, as soon as I could. Um, and then the second reason was, you know, being in food, it's it's intense. Uh, I don't think people realize, you know, how much effort goes into the operation of a food concept. And so I, I got a little burned out at being an operator for 20 plus years. Um, so, you know, when when um, people would come to me with franchise opportunities, one of my biggest things to push back on is I didn't want to be the operator anymore. I was willing to invest in them. I was willing to look into them and partner with somebody, but I didn't want to be the operator. I didn't want to have to go in every day. And that's just evolution. I mean, that I, I encourage others to be operators. I think you learn a lot, but I'm not, I'm not, you know, dismissing that it's a crappy job or something like that. I'm just saying I got burnt out on it. So, well, there's, there's probably an interesting insight there too, because take, take the multi-unit franchise conference. You have arguably 500 franchisors that are going into that conference exhibiting with this big, fat, audacious goal that they're going to sign a deal. But the reality is like where you were at in your life, they, yes, they could come and present to you. And yes, you were considered a cream of the crop as a 14 unit operator. You would be a target where all of them are licking their chops to get in front of you. But probably what they missed in, in the approach to you is where you are emotionally is look, I'm burnt out a little bit, guys. Like you got to present this in a little bit different way. And when they're presenting it always the same way over and over again, there's no way they would get your attention. Is that, does that seem accurate? Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Um, you know, I, people would have to know me to know where I was uh, in that. And, and there's a, you know, I'd say that there's a lot of 
multi-unit owners like myself that wish that they would have found that conference uh, maybe when they owned one or two locations, because right. that would have been a perfect opportunity to grow to 10 or grow to 20. Um, but definitely, if, if you know, you have to know your audience, right? So um, most franchise brands in general present to people who probably have not been multi-unit owners in their past, and they're looking for an entry-level franchisee. But if you go to a multi-unit show and you know the people that are attending, uh, you've got to present it in a different way because um, a lot of them are not going to be the operators. Right. They're looking for something to add to their portfolio. Another thing that I heard from your opening statement, and it, it it's in line with what we're hearing from franchisees. At the beginning of last year, we said, all right, we, we do traditional PR for all these franchise brands. And we profile the franchisee. We say we talk to them about what is their background and such. And I said, we're missing an opportunity to dive in and talk about purpose, mission, and vision from these franchise owners and hopefully collect an aggregate and have some sort of sense on what is the buyer journey of a franchisee. And we said, okay, let's get to the purpose. And not one person has said anything other than family. And here, your children watched you as a franchisee, and now you've partnered with them in franchising. And so I find that awesome because that's exactly why so many people are getting into this. And not only did they see how dad worked, they now want to be in it. And now you're, you're doing it again, just in the, in the light that you wanted to. So along the way, like their franchise journey, like they must have, they grew up in this and wanted to be a part of this. It sounds like. Yeah. Nick, I think you br brought up a uh, important topic that I think is really happening in the franchise industry right now. And that is like a second generation of, uh, franchise business owners and franchise boards uh, coming into the um, into the space. Uh, yes, my kids grew up behind the register, uh, making salsa in the restaurant, baking cookies, decorating cookies, you know, whatever it was, they grew up there and they knew it. And to, to be transparent, they didn't want to take over my stores. <laughs> like they didn't, they didn't say, I can't wait till this is all mine. Yeah. Uh, but Fast forward to my daughter just a couple of years ago coming to me and she was 20, she is 26, almost 27. And she said, Hey dad, I want to, I want to be a small business owner. Just like I said in 1998. Right. And one of the big differences that I already hinted on was that I didn't have resources to look things up and I didn't, I didn't have a mentor back then. So here she's got a mentor and a coach that's been through a lot. And I, I, almost like a franchise business broker, I said, what are you interested in? You know, what excites you? What do you want to do? And, and we kind of scaled it right down to the exact kind of industry that they wanted or that she wanted and the type of uh, operation that she wanted inside that industry. Um, and then we went out and searched for it at the multi-unit show and we found Senhound uh, ultimately. And that was our, our brand of choice. And now she's, you know, crushing it as an operator. Uh, I hope that I had an influence on that, but she knows her numbers. She knows everything down to the most minute details, and she does a fantastic job operating it. I'm glad to see her do it instead of me because I don't want to go in there every day and wash dogs. So. I love that. So another, another insight that has been fairly consistent, and we've broken it into two categories. We said at the end, when it came down to decision, what pushed you over the edge? And there's only two things that come up and it's culture and the business model. That, that's it. It's some variation of it that when you go to a discovery day, 
you have to feel comfortable with the vision of the leadership. that They're really going to truly have your back as a franchise operator. And then of course you got to look like, even though people talk about passion, we do have to look at costs to get in and how much I could potentially make. Margins are important and perceived margin and where will I land in the market that I'm going into? Does that align with where, when you were coaching her through that decision, were those the two things that could have pushed her either way? I think those are pretty accurate. I, I always say that, especially for a multi-unit owner, um, it really comes down to the business model and the, the profitability. I think it's fortunate that in franchising operations and marketing and development and real estate selection are so uh, done for you already. They're, they're so worked through that really you need a franchisee, even a multi-unit owner or a mega multi-unit owner is truly an operator. And they are looking at, can I operate this business model? And it doesn't matter if it's dogs or burgers or cookies or mosquito killing, you know, any of those things. It doesn't matter what it is, right? Uh, so they want to look at, number one, the business model. And then number two, absolutely the culture. And those are interchangeable. They could be one or two, whichever one. And I, I can't think of a, a better culture than the one that's at Senhound. And uh, the, the business model is very strong for us. So it's a, it's a good concept for me and my family. I love it. One other thing that I heard, and then, then I'm going to switch into the career side. But yeah. I heard we want to get to, you know, four or five, six locations. In your head, you're, you're still you're putting a governor at the at the end of that. What what puts you is it because you're hesitant to say I want to get to 10, 20, 30? Or is it because at some point you feel like you can max out with a brand? Uh, no, that's what we signed up for. <laughs> so, <laughs> so first and foremost, we want to get to the five or six locations. Right. Um, so um, and that uh, also to the credit of the brand, uh, they, you know, uh, limited us. They didn't want to sell a territory that was too big and, and have a franchisee kind of get into trouble. Right. So give it time. Everybody can grow together. But our area, I think, could support 20 to 30 of these. And there's no limitation on that as long as we develop a um, an organizational structure to operate with. And and I think that there's a lot of franchisees that don't do that, multi-unit franchisees, and that's where they begin to s struggle. And I go back to my Marine Corps days that, you know, there's three fire teams in a squad, three squads in a company or a platoon, three platoons in a company and on and on and on. And so I, I have seen organizational structures and the support mechanisms that are needed to grow an organization. And that's that's just something that we're going to have to focus on eventually when we get away from operating one to two locations and start running organization that is operating 15, 20, 30 locations. Yeah. I mean, I, I totally agree with you. I think the, the successful multi-unit operator, the non-successful multi-unit operator does hub and spoke per location. So it's just this, but multiple over and over again versus one giant wheel where you say, this is how we do things. And we just cross apply. It's almost like franchising your operation model. Nick, we're, uh, having, some, we're having some issues there. Uh, let's see if you come back. I can see you. Sean, can you hear me? I'll give Sean a second. See if it comes back. Maybe. How about now? Back? You're just having some, some uh, internet speed issues, I think. Yeah. If Can you hear me okay, though? Maybe. 
Give it one more second. Let's see if it kicks back in. Uh, maybe, Sean? I can hear you, yes. Okay, great. There we go. <laughs> It's uh your your side's freezing up a little bit, but we'll uh we'll we'll press forward and see if we can make this work. What I was saying is it's the hub and spoke model that when you do when you operate individual locations, you end up failing because you're just duplicating it over. It, you have to almost apply the franchisor model to being a franchisee and say, This is the way we do things and cross apply it. And obviously you as you as the tour Absolutely. guide for your daughter seems to have tremendous value into what you guys are gonna accomplish. Yeah, and and you know to your point a minute ago, there there were several concepts that we looked at not only in the dog space but in my career uh, of 25 years of franchising. There was a lot of concepts I looked at that I walked away and I said, "Oh my God, that there's no way." You know, the the culture's not good, or the business model doesn't make sense to me, or or whatever. And and I think that my my daughter and son, that my son runs the ones in Houston, uh, they benefit from me being able to kind of work through all that very quickly, you know, an FDD tells a lot of story and right. my wife's in franchising as well. So we can get behind an FDD and pe just peel through it and really figure out, you know, the nuts and bolts of the operation. I love it. All right. Switching over to the career side. And I, I do think there's similarities in the approach of a franchisee and in a career and vice versa. When a franchisor is going through the discovery day, of a human being to say, do I want you on my team? They're looking at much of much of the same. And, and my perception is today more than ever before, the candidate has a little bit more control. They're saying, no, I'm not going to put up with this culture much faster than in the past, where it was like, maybe I'll take the beating for a little bit longer. In general, what are you seeing when it comes to the hiring climate and the recruitment climate in franchising uh, what, what, what is the climate right now? Well, I think um, most organizations, whether they're a franchise related organization or not, I think that most organizations are trimmed to the bone in their in their staff. There's not a lot of fat in the organizations. And so most of them need help. You know, you got a lot of people that are working a lot of hours. Uh, doing multiple skills or or um, specialties, and they need help, but they have two issues: one, trying to find somebody, um, and then two, having you know the economic foreshadowing to make sure that it's it's safe enough to hire someone. So what we often see is that um, it's 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 a little bit of a cycle related to quarters. Somebody may say, you know, in the fourth quarter, our strategy is we're going to hire a uh, COO. So we, we, you know, don't get a call for a couple months. And then right before the fourth quarter starts, they say, let's turn it on and we're, and we're going. Um, and part of that has changed as well, just since the economy is at least starting to flatten out a little bit instead of, instead of spin. Uh, so we, I still think that in, in my role as the leader of Careertopia, we still see a little bit of a roller coaster. Gets really hot and then starts slowing down a little bit for us. And then two weeks later, it's really hot. I mean, just a few weeks ago, we were down to just two or three contracts that we had open. And today we have nine contracts open. So, you know, it can happen that fast uh, when people start uh, really uh, deciding that they need to add people. And I think they all know it. There's a lot of need out there. If a franchisor is smart, 
and they they pushed replay on what we just talked about. And you said decision absolutely comes down to culture. The reality is hiring you should shortcut some of this pathway because you're going to vet someone in a way that says, can this person actually have impact? Yes, in the role that they have. It doesn't matter if it's an operation role, marketing role, sales role. But when that candidate comes there and this executive leader is a part of that discovery moment, does Sean feel this person is going to be a culture ad? And now mo most of the time, I'm sure you butt, butt into CEOs that know better than you do when it comes down to decision. But still, that's a huge insight that if I'm trying to determine what is the why you why now, that's that's part of it is you have the institutional knowledge of what a multi-unit franchisee wants out of a corporate culture. Yeah, that's uh, real important. So I, um, I talk about this uh, in that uh, between the four of us that are in the Careertopia organization, collectively, we have about 120 years experience in franchising. And one or all four of us are at every franchise conference there is, right? So we often get an opportunity to see candidates two, three times a year. And we say, hey, Nick, what have you been up to? Uh, you know, did you get promoted? Are you looking for something new? But equally important, we get to talk to the brands. We know the brand leaders. We know a lot of people that work for the brand. So we know their culture. And so when it comes time to make that match, we have a relationship often with the candidate and we have a good relationship with the client. And that match is just better off because we know them and we know if they'll fit in this organization or not. So yes, we're more efficient in making the match. And I think that we make a better match. From trying to create a clear point of point of view on why you, why now, if I said, what are you guys famous for? How, how would you answer that? Why you over everybody else? Well, I think uh, first off, we, we only do franchise executive search. We don't do oil and gas or device manufacturing or anything like that. So um, when, when someone maybe goes to our competitor who they do a good job, I'm not going to knock them but they're probably doing more of a LinkedIn keyword search for candidates where we have a bench already of people that we've talked to qualified. And like I was just saying, seen, spent time with, uh, you know, went to conferences with, talked to them there, met them in person. We've spent a lot of time with them. So we just, I ultimately, again, think that we make a better match in the end. Yeah. I love because it. of that. From, from my viewpoint, just because I, I like providing this as a part of our discussion, uh, I've, I've always said brands don't sell brands, people do. And if, if I were you, when I, when I went to your guys' site, that, that's your story. Yeah. And frankly, th if, if this, is, this should be your main page. Because yeah. I look through here, I'm like, what, one guy led the, the IFA. He arguably led the IFA, right. uh, even if there was a CEO in place. One guy has created the premier publication and now channels for for, uh, for multi-unit franchising and franchising in general. One guy carved out the expo world and one guy became a successful franchisee. And it's like, yeah. this is your story. And now I, I do think like legacy people within the industry clearly know who you guys are, but your area of opportunity is those that don't. But right there, if, if it was me, if I bought your company tomorrow, I'm, this is your main main page because I see so much value in what you guys provide back to you know, any company or candidate, because I feel like on the candidate side, you're going to have my back because you understand what it's like. And on the Zor side, you guys have seen 
you've seen tons of franchises fail and you've seen tons of franchises succeed. But your guy's story is buried. You got some stock image of a lady that nobody knows on your front page. That's my two cents. <laughs> well, we appreciate that. And I will definitely take that into consideration. I will say that when I when I verbalize the story, that's where it starts. Totally. Uh, Gary, Tom, and Scott being the partners and uh, the reason why they started this and, and their backgrounds. So that's where it all starts. So let's take someone, a franchisor uh, or a supplier, because you, you help suppliers too. You have a, a brand out there that needs some help on the recruiting side, which I will say recruiting is a ginormous issue for many brands right now. And truth be told, most recruiting firms are full of shit. So <laughs> you guys have an opportunity here, but let's say there's a ghost out here. They don't know your story. If you wanted to tell them a message on why they should reach out to you, what is that message? Well, I think you hinted on it a, a little bit earlier. We can we can definitely shorten that process for a brand. Um, we, again, know all sides of the equation. Uh, we know where you'll fit and where you won't. And we can do a lot of the work in advance that that you would be spending hours and hours and hours doing. Our most intense time of the entire search is that first three weeks. And that's going through... Um, candidates. And, and we, just to let you know, don't typically post an ad and say, hey, who wants this job? Uh, we go out and find them first. So that is a little bit different because we're not just getting a bunch of resumes in uh, because we posted an ad on LinkedIn. We're actually searching for the specific role and the sp specific qualifications and requirements for that role. Um, and I, as I mentioned, we, we have this bench. You know, we've talked to people. We know who's ready who's got the experience. When I talk to a client and they say, hey, we're looking for a CFO that's got this experience, these things, that thing, right on the border of my notebook, I'm putting some names down that I've talked to in the last two or three months. And I take calls all week long from candidates who I don't have a position for, right? I just want to continue to get to know them, find out where they are and what they're doing. And that's what that bench building is all about. Yeah, I love it. Uh, love your story. Obviously, I've known you for a long time. Uh, and I, I love where you're going in there. And then, frankly, the credibility that you lend. You don't take enough credibility for it, but you have you have plenty of it. So Thank I really you. appreciate this conversation. Uh, for Sean, I'm Nick. Uh, this is another episode of Meet the Supplier. Take care, everybody. Thanks.